sick of me even though I don't have slides. So we've got um, discipleship track that's actually starting as well. So if you guys are interested in that, that is starting this week. Um, so if you're interested, talk to me, talk to Anthony. Um, also, check the bulletin. Um, there's a couple other things. I'll, I'll refrain. So make sure you look at the bulletin, but otherwise I'm going to invite Pastor Anthony up, and we're going to pray into the Word. Woo. All right, God, we just thank you so much that, wow, God, we just trust you that you have something to speak to every single person in this room tonight. That you know exactly what their heart means, you know exactly the truth that they need to, um, to understand you more, to know you more, and to fall into deeper in love with you. So God, we just thank you that you're speaking those things to everyone tonight, and that you've anointed Pastor Anthony um, to bring your truth uh, to this congregation. So we just pray a special blessing over him tonight, that this message will, um, I'm sure it's a heavy one, but I'm sure it'll be easy for us to hear, and that we'll walk out of here feeling enlightened and encouraged, and, and have a deeper understanding and a deeper love for you. So we thank you for it, and we thank you for the offering and all the things that you're doing in this church. We call it blessed in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Shamrock. Good afternoon. I'm a left-handed mic person. 50-50, and I always get it wrong. How are you guys doing? Good. 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 Excellent, man. Worship was amazing. Thank you, Justin. Where you at? Thank you so much. <laughs> guys, we're starting a new series today called You Have Heard It Said. What are we talking about? We're going to the Sermon on the Mount, and there are a few parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, this is what you think God's will is. This is what you think the law says, and this is what tradition has told you, but I'm tweaking things. I'm saying this, all right? And we are going to jump in right now with a heavy, hard one. We're going to talk about what Jesus says about murder. How's that for a title to a message? Murder. <laughs> and it looks so happy, right? You heard it said. Murder. Yeah, sorry. I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. I was in danger making this message of just throwing a bunch of information on the slides, and I know what would have happened had I done that. It would have been like 10 minutes too long, and afterwards, this guy would have come up to me, and he would have been shaking his head like, dude, poor man, buddy. So I've tried. Justin, I've tried. So it might get heavy. I may cry. If I cry, it sometimes happens. I will just go on. But we are going to talk about what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount about murder. Now, what is going on at the Sermon on the Mount? Mountains were very important in Jewish tradition, right? There was this guy named Moses who got the law of God from God himself on a mountain. And then Moses came down and delivered the law of God to all the people who were right there at the base of the mountain. This image was burned into Israel, Israel's tradition, right? Every single Jewish person watching Jesus go up on a mountain and then addressing the crowds with an unparalleled authority would have thought, is he, is he trying to like make us think of Moses right now? Is he trying to do a Moses-y thing? Because he sure seems like he's feeling very free to tweak things that only God should be able to tweak, right? He starts right out with the Beatitudes, and then he jumps into, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, all right? He's speaking with authority. He is God. He is shining new light on what God thinks about certain specific issues. This is the first one. Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Jesus is up on the mountain. He's got the image of Moses going on, right? And he just lets him have it. He says to the people, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. 
and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that means fool, empty-headed one, imbecile, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, which is a whole other thing altogether, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Interesting. First thing that jumps out is the word murder. And yes, I want to specify that we are talking about actual murder. The unlawful killing of a human being. I was reading in the uh, NIV Study Bible, which I actually got in Bible school, which is like huge and gigantic and wonderful. And it has a little note. And it points out that there are several words for to kill in both Greek and Hebrew. But in the Old Testament, in Exodus 20... When God is giving the Ten Commandments, he uses the Hebrew word for murder, specifically. And in the New Testament, when Jesus is speaking in Greek, he uses the Greek word for murder. So, murder is what's definitely in mind. And what does he say is, is similar here? If you murder, you're subject to judgment. But if you're angry with a brother or sister, you are also subject to judgment. We have to handle this right away, because when I, when I hear someone preach on this, this is what I'm afraid they're going to say. Let me skip forward, so I can't get angry, seriously. Like, I'm never, I have to be this placid shell of a human being that doesn't have real emotions. No. Let's go to my favorite commentator of all time. David Guzik. that's right, on the blueletterbible.org. He says this. <laughs> I do. That's right. David Madhuguzi. Get serious, guys. This, we're talking about murder. Jesus. <laughs> we should emphasize, and we are emphasizing, that Jesus is not saying that anger is as bad as murder. It is profoundly morally confused, amen, to think that someone who shouts at another person in anger has sinned as badly as someone who murders another person in anger. Think of the weirdness that it would do if Jesus was actually saying, oh, you're angry at him, that's just like you killed him. It's like, well, I might as well bury him out back because then it won't give any more problems. Like, that just goes to terrible places, right? So don't do that. I know some of you were thinking it. No, I hope not. But don't do that. He's not saying anger is the same as murder, but he is saying something very, very, very disturbing. And we're going to build to it. He is saying that if there was a genre of wrong, this is in the same genre as murder. And you will be subject to judgment. So it's wrong and stuff. So now we're right back here. So are you telling me I can't get angry? Well, it depends on what you mean by angry. Because if we're going to read the Bible, the Bible says things like this in Ephesians 4.31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And you might think, my, that's straightforward. Get rid of all anger. Except it has to be nuanced. Because Jesus himself got angry. When we look in Mark 3, 4, and 5, there's a guy with a withered hand, right? And he calls the guy with a withered hand to the front. It's on the Sabbath day. And he says, is it lawful to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? So is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And they stay silent because they want him to heal the guy so Jesus can get in trouble. And that takes Jesus off. Like, depending on the translation you're reading, they may try to soften this word, but this is the word for ticked off, angry. It says, 
But they kept silent, and after looking around at them with anger, so not after being miffed, but being very mature, keeping it to himself, after looking around at them with anger, so they knew, you have made me angry, he heals the guy. Okay? So, God doesn't contradict himself. If Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of anger, get rid of anger, but Jesus was angry, we have to hunt for some nuance. Even more because a few verses before Paul writes, get rid of all anger, he says this in Ephesians 4.26-27. I'll just hit the rock of Justin right now, who is the first person ever to point this out to me. It says, be angry. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. There's this scholar named Clinton Arnold. I had this commentary on Ephesians, and he goes like level 10, full on scholar nerd mode in the Greek right here. And he says, This is an imperative. There's no way around it. This is a command. He uses the command form of be angry. It means be angry. And he's like, If you want to soften it and make it like some sort of conditional, you'd still have to translate it. Should you ever become angry, and I hope that you do do this. Okay? So it's like there's very few ways to get around this. And then he points out that Paul is quoting a psalm. Psalm 4.4, which in the Greek translation we call the Septuagint, that they were reading it in the day, it says in the Greek exactly the same thing. Be angry and do not sin. And that is in the context of the psalmist contemplating the injustice in the world. You know, we got these evil people that seem to be doing okay, and the righteous people are having a hard time. And then he writes some advice to the reader who's supposed to be like, yeah, that's right. And he says, be angry, but don't sin. Trust in the Lord. So, what do we do with this? There's a specific type of anger. There's a thing, there's a genre of anger that they're talking about. And this should set some light on it. This is from John Stott, famous scholarly scholar who I quote for that reason and because I agree with him. And he says this, there is a great need in the contemporary world for, somebody say that next word, more. more. There is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Be angry, but don't sin. Amen. You know, this is weird. What type of people, what specific person is John Stott talking about that we should be angry at? None. He's talking about concepts. He's talking about sin and evil in the world. And God does hate that stuff. And he's saying, if you don't get angry what God gets angry at, you're not obeying the command to become like God. We're not taking on his character very well if we pick and choose aspects of his character that we want and aspects that we'll pass on. God is angry at some stuff. If you're going to obey, if you're going to be formed into the, the likeness of Christ, which is the goal, that implies getting angry at the right stuff in the right way. But when I was making this message, I realized something. Anger is way trickier than sex. <laughs> Didn't think I was going to go there, did you? That's right. Surprise! Here we are now. We're right in the middle of it. 
So, like, the Bible says, you know, follow me on this, hold on. The Bible says immorality is wrong. What does that look like? It looks like doing stuff with people you're not married to. And the Bible says lust is wrong. Right? Well, what does that look like? That means contemplating doing stuff with people you're not married to. But then we get married. Right? And we get to turn on the Marvin Gaye and life is good. Right? There's an appropriate outlet. Praise him. I'll do it. I'm not afraid. You did it your That was a good day. Coming back. Okay. Do you guys know anchor is trickier? Because I don't know that there is necessarily a healthy, appropriate Christian outlet for it. So on the one hand, we need to be angry at what God is angry at, but then what do we do with it? And that's the question, isn't it? James 1, 19-20 says this, and this counterbalances Scott's quote. This you know, my beloved brethren, but I'm going to tell you again. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Notice James doesn't say, don't get angry at all. He says, guys, it's wisdom to be slow to get angry. Why is that? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Even if you are angry at the same things God is angry at. So strange, but so true. You know, so I was thinking, like, who likes the Punisher? Any, any Punisher fans in here? I don't really get into the comic book things. Like, his whole thing is, right, it's like vigilante justice, right? I think so. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. If I don't, I apologize. I really don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> let's say that you have a bad guy. He's really a bad guy. He's done really bad things. Like, he's a murderer and a kidnapper and a rapist, right? Guilty as sin, and you know it for sure. All right? Should get the death penalty. Would in any court in the world if he could actually be tried, but no one can catch him. But you do. And so you take him out. You are a murderer. And do you know why you're a murderer? It's not because they didn't deserve judgment. It's not because they didn't deserve wrath. It's because you are not the agent who is responsible for dispensing justice. So good. That's the difference between a vigilante and a judge. The judge is the agent who is responsible for dispensing justice. Should a judge say, you're guilty and you deserve death, they are not a murderer. In fact, that is not a murderer. That's justice. That's vengeance. That's wrath dispensed. Does that make sense? Yeah. We have an obligation to have God's character, but we cannot do God's job. So anger is trickier than sex. Like, there's no outlet. <laughs> so be slow to be angry. Does that make sense? Yes. There's a bright side. And I want to... I'm going to get serious for just a minute. Even more serious. There's a spectrum of stuff that makes us angry, Okay. Right? Like when somebody cuts you off in traffic, that would be like over here, right? And irritating. But then over here, we have other real stuff like genocide. Okay? We have things like physical abuse, rape, long-term evil perpetrated on other human beings. Evil is a real thing. It's evil that John Stott is saying we need to be furious at. If you are hearing me, say, hey, you're not allowed to be angry at that, and you have no outlet, that is probably arousing some emotions. I'm trying not to make too much eye contact. <laughs> if you have been the victim of horror, yeah. you will hear this message differently. 
than someone who had to pay extra taxes one year. And that's the worst thing that's ever happened to them, okay? So for you, for the people who have suffered true evil, the kind of stuff that God is furious at, and for the people who have perpetrated true evil, and they know it, you need to know something. I was praying before the service. Yeah, we have a leader prayer, and it was amazing. And I felt like the Lord said, you know, Anthony, there are people who are going to hold tight to their anger. They're going to quench it for dear life, even though it's killing them. Because they're thinking to themselves, they can't get away with it. They can't get away with it. And there's just this feeling that if I let go of this anger, you know, and I feel like it's, it's like cold anger, too. Anger, like, looks different sometimes. It's like water can be a liquid or a gas or a salad. You know, it doesn't always look like that hot, screaming rage. It gets cold. You know, it freezes. It becomes solid. Before you know it, it's something you're standing on. Your whole life is based on it. You know, and I feel like there's people here that are clutching onto it. They don't want to let it go because they think they can't get away with it. And I, I just want to tell you guys, nobody gets away with it. Right. Yeah. You can let it go. Yeah. No one gets away with it. This is why, and I forgot I didn't delete that side. Don't let it ruin the mood. This is what Paul says to you, okay? If you are the victim of evil, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Why? But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I just want to point out that God doesn't say it's mine to avenge and I pass. It's mine to avenge, but I'm too nice. It's mine to avenge, but I don't feel like it because it's Tuesday. It's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So when you forgive that great evil, which you must do, know that you are taking the matter out of your hands. But it does not leave God's hands. And should that person never come around, should you see the justice that is dispensed to them, even you will probably wish they went for grace. Does that make sense? I encourage you to let that anger go. I just saw this image like this iceberg of frozen anger in someone's heart. Just let it go, man. That will become a fertile valley for your life in a room you never knew you had. Alright? Trust me on that. Sorry? I told you, I don't know what's going to happen today. Alright. You can let it go. If you're the perpetrator of evil, you don't get away with it. But Jesus pays the price. Amen. Jesus didn't say that evil is now excused. Jesus said that evil deserves a horrible, nasty, bloody punishment. All be the guy. Go with that. And it will still cost you your life, but in different ways. Every day you will have to die. St. Paul knew that he caused horrible harm and murdered people. And he took on suffering as a result with a willingness that was like a hungry man eating food. Because he knew what God had saved him from. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. We're moving on. This is what we're talking about in Matthew 5. This is Guzik quoting another commentator named Barclay. Jesus forbids forever the anger which broods, the anger which will not forget, the anger which refuses to be pacified, the anger which seeks for revenge. That type of anger, Jesus is saying, no, that's in the genre of murder. Why? We'll see in a minute. 
but we have to get rid of it. It's not okay. Mounts agrees. We're going back to Mounts' expository, my favorite source. Mounts says this about the word anger. More often, anger, this Greek word, signifies God's wrath directed at wrongdoing. Paul equates God's wrath with his vengeance. Absolutely. And God stores up his wrath for those who are unrepentant. All right? It's there. It's brooding. It will not forget. You know what? We don't have what it takes. We don't have the moral right or the capacity to bear that anger. God does, and he is. But it's not for us. Then he says something that leads us into why this is so obnoxious. Christians are not destined for such an act. Amen? Praise the Lord. If you're a Christian, even if you've done evil things, if you're under the cross, you are not heading for God's wrath. You've been delivered. You've been transferred from darkness to light. Right? He doesn't call you an enemy. He calls you a son and a daughter. That's real good news. Depending on what you've done, you know how good that news is. Check this out. Mounts quotes 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God did not appoint us, Christians, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, you know, to people God has forgiven, you know, brothers and sisters. This is kind of the hook of what Jesus is saying. He's like, if you're angry, if you have this deep, brooding, unpacifiable lust for vengeance towards a brother or a sister, whoa, that's in the genre of anger, of murder for sure. Now, we just talked about how it's not right for anybody, right? But it is especially repugnant to God when people in the church have this towards other people in the church for any reason. And unless you doubt my interpretation, one of my favorite books of all time, Jesus and the Gospels by Craig Blomberg, that's right, amen? Blomberg says this, use of brother or brothers in Matthew, when not meaning biological siblings, refers to spiritual kin, either fellow Jews or fellow disciples of Jesus. He's talking about this attitude towards other Christians. That's disgusting. And, and look at it build. You can see it build in the verse, right? Like, first you're just angry. You have this feeling on the inside that won't be pacified, that wants them to be judged, right? He says, that's bad enough. That's subject to judgment. And then it starts to sprout a little bit, right? It starts to come out in insults. You know, not big ones, just rock up. But that is, is worthy to have you go before the court. In Hebrew, that's the Sanhedrin. Excuse me, in Greek. That's the high court. That's a big deal. That's a little more severe than just a judgment. And then he says, if you call a brother a fool, and this is the big one, you are in danger of going to hell. Why? Because that thing in your heart is really showing up. Fool is a significant word. In the Greek, it means this. Jesus uses fool, this is also from Mounts, to describe those who disobey God's will and as a result will be severely judged. He's talking about Christians who look at other Christians with such contempt in their hearts for whatever reason that they, they, they think, Jesus, I know you forgave them, but I don't. Jesus, I know that you died for them, but I wish it was the other way around. Jesus, I know you took them from darkness to light, but I wish you'd send them back. And I know you saved them from hell, but I want you to change your mind. And you might never say that out loud, but you know what is speaking for you? Is this churning unpacifiable, bitter anger that exists in your heart. 
The law can only deal with what shows up. Murder. But Jesus is qualified to judge what comes before that in your heart. In discussing the need for true kingdom people to move beyond external religiosity, what shows up looking nice, Jesus uses this Greek word for fool to stress that the commandment not to murder is broken by the attitude of hate that eventually might lead to murder. This word signifies that that anger has grown fully into hatred and contempt for another person, specifically a brother or sister in the church. But certainly that's impossible, said probably no one in this room. <laughs> you don't have to amen that. Let's move on. I found this image online and I love it. Right? It's just a seed growing into like four or five stages into a plant. I imagine that the dirt is your heart. And you have the authority to put stuff in it. So do other people. But guess what? You can also take stuff out. So if there's a little tiny rat seed in there, right? Just a, just a little bitty rat seed, and you don't remove it, it will grow. And eventually, that is the same thing that sprouts up and starts showing up as little insults. It's going to come out of your mouth. Then it's going to be an attitude of contempt. And that same thing might grow, if you leave it alone, into murder. But all of those things, to Jesus, are in the same genre. Does that make sense? It's not for us. It's not for us. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 21 to 23. It is from within. Somebody say within. <laughs> Out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, time out. Sexual immorality, like doing sexual stuff, is that a thought? Well, no, not really. How about this? Theft. Wait a minute, Jesus, are you crazy? Is theft a thought? Well, not really. How about this next one? Murder. Is that a thought? Well, no, not really. But they started as one. Yeah. Jesus sees the seed and the plant as the same thing. Mm -hmm. The plant's bigger, it's got bark. It takes more to deal with. It's more serious. But it's the same thing. The acorn is the oak tree. Amen. Out of the inside come immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils that you should be mad at come from the inside. And he says those are what defile a person. When? When they actually bear fruit 20 years from now? No, when they're a seed. And maybe the law can't see the seed. But Jesus came. Alright, what do we do about this? I think the answer, partially at least, and in a large part, is just plain old humility. Man, oh man. Paul was a murderer. When people tried to kill him, the guy thought, oh, this is what it's like on the other side. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. <laughs> Instead of, how could this be happening to me? I hate that. Right? Humility changes everything. Look at what Jesus says right after he gives this warning about anger. This is how he says it should be solved. Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, because I see that seed of anger and it's worthy of judgment and you're in danger of hell if it grows up. If you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, then leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. This is such a twist. It should work both ways, right? But Jesus is saying, if you, Mike, thank you for coming. You're not an example. 
Appreciate it. If you know that Aaron is ticked off at you, and it looks like he really is anyway, <laughs> Jesus is saying, you go make it right. Even though we're probably thinking, right, if they're angry at us, it's not our fault. Not my problem. So-and-so is really ticked off at you. So what? Jesus is saying, go save them. I see what's in their heart. They are in danger. Love them enough to suck up your pride and go make it right. Don't you love them? They're heading for bad news, man. There's a rat seed in their heart, and that sucker's going to grow up. Next, he brings it right back to judgment in Matthew 5, 25, and he uses the image of court. He says, settle matter quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. This puts kind of a fine point on it. It's like things may not go your way. You think you're justified and they're angry at you and it's their problem. It could very quickly become your problem. You might want to take care of this. So if you don't do it out of concern for your brother, because Jesus sees that wrath seed in their heart and you should want it removed just like he does, do it for yourself. Because you don't know what's going to happen in judgment. You may not be seeing the situation clearly. It may be your fault after all. And you know what? What's really weird, what really hurts? You might be right. It might be totally one-sided. It might be absolutely justifiable that you think everything is fine. And they might be totally wacky for thinking that you are a problem. Their anger can be unjustified. They could be angry at you for no reason. It could be nothing. It could be a misunderstanding. Does the Bible teach that I still have to go with ranch dressing in my back pocket to eat crow and make this right? Yes. I suggest actual ranch dressing since it makes everything better all the time. First Corinthians 6 7. Guys, this is one of the tougher verses in the whole Bible, in my opinion. The very fact Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, they're suing each other. He says, The fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Isn't it more important for you to lose a little bit unjustly and let the rat seed be taken out of their heart? Why would you let something that noxious grow in the church? Do whatever it takes not to have that. Right? Even if it means being cheated. Even if it means being taken before the authorities and you being judged and you losing stuff. You know, even if it means just giving them stuff that they don't deserve, why wouldn't you rather be cheated so that there can be peace, so that there can be no wrath? Get rid of the wrath. And if that seems like too much to ask, if that seems unreasonable, the guy who taught this was Jesus. You may remember, Jesus allowed himself to be killed for you. Which should bring a little bit of perspective. When we are angry about stuff. Does that make sense? At this point, I'm going to do something I don't ever do. And I'm going to stop the recording because I don't want the next part on the recording. So, thank you, Internet listeners.